So folks, what I would like to do now is an AMA, a solo AMA. I haven't been doing this for a while, so I'm sure you've got lots of questions. Many, many of them, I hope, linked with uh, donations as well. So if you'd like to do the super chat thing, definitely go to entropystream.live forward slash countercurrents, hit the green button. You can take out your credit card and send us a super chat. We very much appreciate it. Entropy is one of the few organizations on the planet that really stands up for free speech. They have not knuckled under to the credit card processing industry, which has blacklisted us globally. So if you want to use plastic to help countercurrents, this is the way to do it. So thank you very much. Thank you, Entropy, as well. I have a donation here of $25 from Clarissa. Clarissa, thank you very much. She says thanks, and I say right back at you. James has written in with a donation of five US dollars. I really appreciate that. Thank you. Niels has written in with 50 US dollars. Here's the donation for the auspicious month of May, as always given in the name of the great God, Ingwe Frere. I really appreciate this. He gave this way back when, but I haven't done any streams recently. So I, I haven't had a chance to actually thank him in person. Doug has written in with 25 US dollars. Hello, Greg. Hope you are doing well. What do Eastern European nationalists think about Germany and Germans more generally today? Do they see it as a hostile country due to its past and anti-nationalist present? Do they see hopeful signs of change there, or is it too dire given the state repression, mass migration, et cetera? Well, thank you for that question and for the, for the donation. It's complicated. That's the basic answer I can give you. It's complicated. Based on my talks with Eastern European nationalists of various sorts, I denote a number of strands. First of all, you know, as was not surprising, if you're a very nationalist Pole, you don't have fond, cherished memories of German nationalism and the Second World War. And, and that's, that's perfectly understandable. However, what surprises me about Polish nationalists that I know, and also Czech nationalists that I know, is how they really wish Germany would recover. Germany has had this reputation in the past. Germans had this reputation in the past, the stereotype of being arrogant and uh, filled with self-confidence and so forth. And a lot of people in Europe who are not Germans would, would like those guys to come back. Not necessarily building an empire again at other people's expense, but they look upon the utterly dejected German nation and they think, you know, cousin Hans is going to perish if he doesn't recover a certain amount of self-worth. And, they, and they, they definitely are rooting for Germany. I don't think they hold out much hope for Germany. Germany is really under a terrible occupation regime and has been since 1945. It's under a psychic occupation, and it's extremely difficult for Germans to break out. One of the things that's most, I think, foolish about the way Germany operates today, and this is really the way the left operates today, is they, they want to equate nationalism, European nationalism, with only its most picturesquely destructive forms. Of course, you would never do that with any other people, right? You would never do that with the Japanese or the Chinese. 
you'd never do that with, say, Jews in Israel. But European nationalism of any form is always stigmatized by connecting it with the Nazis. And that's just used as a, as a kind of drug, kind of poison to keep Germans, but also other Europeans down. And I think that that's, that's very destructive because there are such things as healthy nationalist impulses and they're, they're healthy nationalist impulses that are not imperialistic. Ethno-nationalism for everyone is a completely coherent moral position. And, and that's really what I, I stand for. And that's what many European nationalists stand for. But they realize that because Germany is the most powerful country in Europe, even in its terribly fallen state, that if Germany actually returned to a healthy form of nationalism, it would make it very much easier for other countries to do the same. Smaller countries look to Germany and they also look to France to a lesser extent and to some extent to Italy as well, because it's a formidable country. And they think that if these countries go nationalist, it'll be easier for us to go nationalist or stay nationalist. So I think a lot of Europeans you know, have historical grievances against the Germans, but I think the most uh, enlightened ethno-nationalists realize that it's going to be very hard to turn things around in Europe without the Germans turning around and recovering a healthy sense of, of national self-worth. So let's see if I have any questions here at DLive. So Chuck writes, bring back arrogance again. Dino writes, Alexander's essays are good. Yes. Blankian says, Germany is a vassal state of American Israel. Germans are not allowed to be proud of their heritage. Germans have done so much great things for humanity, but instead the left chooses to strictly focus on the Nazis. The left is terrified that another white uprising may occur, so they must put a lid on German nationalism. Eugene writes in with five US dollars, how do you morally strike a balance between work and play? Should play ideally be edifying or can it be moral to indulge oneself? Where do you draw the line along an axis of playing music, reading fiction, video games, onanism, intoxicants? I notice a lot of people thinking that leisure is haram. Well, thank you for the donation and thank you for the question. That's actually a really good question. How do you morally strike a balance between work and play? Well, first of all, there are many people that I know who are very dutiful people and they are idealistic and they want to work all the time, especially if they can work all the time for the cause. And my answer to that is, well, that's admirable. However, if you're really serious about working for the cause, then you do have to build in a little bit of downtime, a little bit of rest. If, if you want to live for the cause, well, you've got to eat. You've got to sleep. You've got to get some exercise, right? You, you, you've got to do a number of things that are not just working for the cause. And that includes unplugging once in a while and enjoying yourself. Now, how do you enjoy yourself? Well, there is a gradation here from edifying things to completely onanistic and intoxicating things. Obviously, it's good to have edifying 
pursuits, edifying literature and art in your life. But sometimes just old familiar things are really welcome too. There are certain pieces of music that I've listened to so many times that they couldn't possibly edify me at present. They might've been challenging at one time, but they're not challenging today. It's just relaxing to listen to them. It's just pleasant to dip into that particular musical landscape, that particular imagined world, whatever. And that I think is perfectly reasonable. There's, there's no reason why every piece of art that you enjoy has to be edifying or edifying at all times. And if you just want to relax, then the old and familiar is really the best. The unchallenging is really the best. And that's not a bad thing. There are certain movies that I like to watch, movies that were never edifying, simply goofy entertainment, things like The Fifth Element. <laughs> I... I will defend watching goofy movies like that because sometimes if it's a rainy day or you're getting over an illness or you're jet lagged or you're just good for nothing, sometimes that kind of uh, fun is, is a tonic and it doesn't need to be defended. Now, lolling around all the time, stoned out of your gourd, listening to Jefferson Airplane, that's not what I would recommend though. So you have to, you have to control your pleasures or they control you. So I, I guess that's, that's the bottom line. Moderation is a good thing. Self-control is a good thing. It's necessary to exercise self-control if you want to have a well-rounded and productive and, and decent life. And pleasure is definitely one of the things that can undermine a person's whole life, your entire moral personality, if you get addicted to fentanyl or something like that, you can be destroyed as a human being. So I guess if you want to talk about morality and pleasure, the, the moral virtue that helps you deal with pleasure is, as the Greeks put it, it's, it's sophrosune. It's basically self-control. And I, I do think that that is something that needs to be developed. All things in moderation, including moderation, perhaps no, I, I know it's a joke. I know it's a joke, but um, I would say use everything wisely and you can never have too much wisdom. You can have too much of a good thing, too much of a bad thing, and wisdom allows you to tell the difference between enough and too much or enough and too little, but you can never have too much wisdom. So in a way, you can never have too much moderation if moderation is the face that wisdom shows in dealing with the virtues. So those are my thoughts. Thank you for that. David has written in and he wants to know, what do I think of Thomas Steuben's article, Martinez Contra Fascism, that appeared at Countercurrents this week? If somebody would link that, that would be good. Well, I think that it's, it's, a, it's a good article and it's thought-provoking. I hope that Brandon Martinez response to it. I was told that he might. I think it's time to have a really healthy debate in our movement. And I think Martinez and to some extent how Jared Howe have, have broached important topics, but they've done them in a somewhat bad way, in a somewhat self-defeating way. They're clearly steamed at the power-worshipping people in the movement people who worship state power, 
And uh, I, I think that that's not unreasonable. State power is not necessarily a good thing. State power in the hands of our enemies is a terrible thing. However, I think that they've gone a little overboard because instead of putting their cards on the table about what kind of political order they favor, they are just using sort of libertarian and conservative sounding anti-statist memes, including really sort of cringe nonsense like the claim that, oh, if you, if you are a fascist, you believe that state power is all and therefore anything the government does is good. Well, that, that doesn't follow at all. That's stupid. Everybody believes, except, you know, except for libertarians and anarchists, everybody believes that there are certain legitimate goals of state action. And to say that we believe that the state should, say, protect the environment or protect children or encourage industry and things like that, rather than sloth. Well, that doesn't entail you, you know, signing off on any crazy activities that the state is doing. The U.S. government, for instance, is promoting transvestites in Ecuador, I'm told. Our tax dollars at work promoting transvestism in, in Ecuador. That's not a good use of the state. And to say that I believe in state power for X, Y, and Z doesn't entail that I can't criticize horrible and stupid uses of state power. So I think they're painting with too broad a brush, but I do think we need to have a, con a conversation about this. And I like that Steuben's piece at the end encourages this kind of conversation. I specifically want to have a conversation on state power. I also want to have a conversation on the issue of dictatorship. But, but first, let me just say this. There is no non-statist solution to the problems that white people face. The solution is state power. We need to have state power, and then we need to use state power to implement necessary changes to save our race. There's no non-statist solution to the problems of white people today. So if you want to criticize various statist solutions, you need to put your cards on the table about your statist alternatives. Now, there's a great deal of lazy thinking on the far right that basically just says, well, why not dictatorship? Why not the one-party state, right? A la the 1930s, 1920s, 1940s. And there are a lot of reasons why you might reject the one-party state. There are a lot of reasons why you might reject socialism. Related to this issue about Martinez, see the podcast that Morgoth and I and uh, Pox Populi did dealing with socialism. Isn't there a kind of third position here? Shouldn't there be some nuance here? Shouldn't there be some wiggle room? It's not, you know, all painted in black socialism versus some non-concrete, unspecified form of freedom on the other side, which sounds suspiciously like boomer conservatism or libertarianism which is just not serious. It's not a serious political outlook, right? So I would like to have a debate where there's a critique of the advocates of maximal statism by pro-white advocates of a different kind of statism. 
I think one way of dealing with that debate, one way of opening that debate is with the question about dictatorship. There are a lot of people who just love the idea of a strongman swooping in and putting things in order. The ancient Romans certainly had an institution of the dictator. The ancient Romans, however, understood the dangers of dictatorship and they realized that it had to be proscribed within very specific limits. The dictator had to deal with a particular thing at a particular time, some kind of emergency usually. Sometimes it had to do with rituals or elections or whatever, but usually it had to do with some kind of crisis of state. They were given plenary powers for the duration of the crisis or for a fixed period of time, and then they were forced to step aside. And when dictators didn't step aside, well, then that, that was finally the downfall of the Republic. The Romans also, though, were very cautious about big men, big private citizens with lots of money building patronage networks. I forget the name of the guy, uh, but he's a very important figure that we need to know about. I'll look it up. Anyway, there was a famine in Rome under the Republic, and one of the great magnets, one of the, one of the richest men in Rome, whose name escapes me, organized famine relief. What did the Senate do? They had him killed for doing that. He went outside the state to organize famine relief. They looked at that as, as a guy using wealth to build a patronage network, what, what was the end result of that? Well, it's the kind of corruption that you want to avoid, that the Republic was designed to avoid, which is basically uh, power, state power, power falling into the hands of private citizens who are empowered by money. They looked at it as an oligarchical move. They looked at it as the threat of a of a guy establishing himself as a dictator through patronage, and they had him killed for his, his kindness. I think that's very, very interesting. Imagine if Americans looked upon rich people getting involved in politics with the same jaundiced eye. It would completely change our political landscape. We wouldn't have figures like Donald Trump rising and becoming invested in the hopes of millions, including people on the far right, we would have people on the far right saying, this man should be proscribed because he's a danger to the state. That's a very different outlook. Uh, I'd like to have a debate about things like that. I'd like to have a debate about, say, classical republicanism, a la the Romans, versus the, the people who are advocates of dictatorship or the one-party state the dictatorship in perpetuity, the one-party state, systems like that, those are very dangerous systems that are subject to all kinds of failures. And I don't see any serious political thought in our circles about the problems that have been raised historically with those kinds of institutions. So I think it's the potentially the beginning of a really valuable debate, but unfortunately, it, it sort of got off to the wrong start by just being sniping, right? Sort of telegram sniping back and forth between different camps. But there is a serious, 
set of issues here. And it would be good to have a serious intellectual discussion. So I, I think that's important. Archie writes, how many sources of coins does CC have when doing a live stream? Just Entropy and Odyssey. Um, I don't know what are done with the DLive tokens. Well, the DLive tokens can be cashed in. Uh, and so we cash them in, uh, cash them in every once in a while and add them to our annual fundraiser goal. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure Ecuador appreciates the aid. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, let me just tell a, a story that occurred to me today. There was a character named Barry Humphreys who died recently, who was famous as Dame Edna Everidge. And Dame, he was a female impersonator, or one of the things he did was female impersonation, and he did this Dame Edna character. And this, he was Australian, famous in Britain and Australia. Uh, and it opens up a world that Americans know little about, which is that in, the, in, in Britain, drag shows were not things for gay bars. They were sort of straight working class entertainment. Female impersonators were, they would be singers, they'd be comedians. Dame Edna had a variety show, a talk show, was a very famous person. And actually, there is a, a Naxos record, I think, of Peter and the Wolf, Prokofiev's Peter and the Wolf, that Dame Edna narrated in the Dame Edna persona. And it's charming. Peter and the Wolf is a piece of, of music for kids, right? And here's Dame Edna narrating it. And I think of that and I think, okay, that is, a, that is almost drag queen story hour. But years ago, when I saw this Naxos disc, I didn't think, oh, this is some kind of sinister, subversive movement, right? I just thought, oh, this is funny. Well, let's hear how Dame Edna narrates Peter and the Wolf, right? Well, David Bowie did a, did a recording of Peter and the Wolf. A lot of different famous actors and musicians would narrate Peter and the Wolf, and they put out recordings of it. It could almost be considered wholesome. And to, to, to look at that and then look at how bizarre this drag queen story hour phenomenon is and how obviously subversive it is and how obviously weird it is that there are parents that are absolutely bound and determined to show how virtuous they are by taking kids to have stories read by drag queens. It is a quite bizarre thing. And there wasn't too long a time ago where something like that was just considered wholesome, amusing entertainment. And now it's obviously something really, really different. I bring this up again because Dame Edna died recently and it was covered in the, in the news. But yeah, there's, there's something very, very peculiar and sinister about what's going on today with these kids. And what, as one commentator on Twitter said, ask not why children need to hear stories read by drag queens. Ask why drag queens want audiences of children. I think that's the, that's the way to look at it. But yeah, the American government is now promoting transvestites in Ecuador. This is your tax dollars at work. Let me check on entropy. Okay, Slog has donated one diamond. Thanks for the stream. Thank you for the donation. I really appreciate it. Okay, we have a number of questions here. Thank you very much. Gaddius writes in, 
10 US dollars. Thank you very much. Thoughts on Meatball and his announcement? I, I, I assume you mean Ron DeSantis. DeSantis. Well, I think it's quite hilarious that Trump is making fun of DeSantis for being fat. That's, that's rich. This election season is going to be highly entertaining. Sutton asked me earlier, and I, this is a question that's related. Do I think that Ron DeSantis is being puffed up as a tool against Trump? Absolutely. Never Trumpers are looking around for any plausible candidate to take Trump out because they just don't like the guy. And DeSantis, though, to give him credit, is the most plausible candidate. And he's certainly not the worst Republican, I can imagine. People like Nikki Haley come to mind. Horrible, horrible people like that. DeSantis is actually relatively good by comparison. DeSantis has gone to enormous lengths to court the Jewish vote in his state, including signing anti-free speech bills that should be struck down on First Amendment grounds in Israel twice. I think that's shocking. But that's par for the course, and you can't really say that DeSantis is any more slavishly pro-Jewish than Trump. I think it's going to be an interesting election. If you think that the next guy in the White House can actually change the course that America is on for the better, then it's very, very important to get the right guy. My feeling is, is that there, there are solutions for America, but they're not going to come from the next president. <laughs> and, uh, and therefore, not to take it all that seriously and just enjoy the show and use it as an opportunity to talk about our politics. Because politics is going to be on the tip of everybody's tongue until November of 2024. And we might as well use it to get our talking points into the conversation. Normies are looking at politics again. We will see our traffic rising at countercurrents as we get closer to the election because people are looking for ideas, alternative viewpoints, or just stuff to support their prejudices about their favorite political candidates. And if we comment on these things, they find us. And if they find us, well, that might lead them to become more enlightened about the important issues. So we will be watching and learning and commenting and enjoying it. But personally, I'm pretty detached from the outcomes of this because this time around, I, I don't expect Trump to accomplish anything if he gets reelected because we've seen based on experience how little he accomplished when he was in office. So those are my thoughts on the meatball and his announcement. And I don't like calling him the meatball. I think DeSantis, I think DeSantis is actually a kind of handsome guy. I, I don't think he's charisma challenged unless your standard of charisma is Donald Trump. Nobody stands up to that standard, but Trump. I, I think he's a, a perfectly presentable candidate and a uh, certainly better than your average Republican. So Archie writes in, how is your book on the right replacement progressing? I have a difficult time convincing people that it is by design because fertility rates are below replacement all over the world. Our governments failed us in pronatal policies. He donates seven US dollars. Thanks a lot. I sort of set aside the Great Replacement Project for a while because I wanted to get this new book that's just been announced 
called The Trial of Socrates out. I started getting the sense that nobody wanted to hear about The Great Replacement. And I was starting to wonder, do I even have an audience for, for this particular book? So anyway, it, it's good to hear that you're interested in the project because it will eventually appear. But my current project in the past few months has been really getting the Trial of Socrates off to press, and that's now off to press, and you can pre-order it at CounterCurrents with a $5 discount on the hardcover paperback until June 30th, which is the official release date. I've got a bunch of essays that I want to write now, including things that are going to gel into another essay collection, and then probably I'll get back to work on finishing up The Great Replacement. So Jornar writes in with 10 US dollars. What is your opinion of Matt Walsh? Well, I don't pay that much attention to Matt Walsh. I do think, though, that the stuff from Matt Walsh's lips that gets circulated around our camp are very encouraging. He's calling out anti-whiteism. He's talking about the Great Replacement, etc. I think that's wonderful. I think that's a sign that he and other people in the adjacent reaches of normie conservative land are waking up to our issues. So I, I think it's a positive thing. Now there's a kind of paranoid discourse from certain circles in our, in, in our sphere that say, oh, this is just false opposition. He's doing this. He's only doing this because of TRS and NJP. He's trying to capture, capture their super chats. I just think that's kooky. I think we, we don't have any evidence that the guy's insincere. I think that he's obviously growing intellectually. And I'm grateful for him talking about our, our talking points in the same way that somebody like Tucker Carlson was a gift to us by talking about the great replacement. I don't know what his ultimate game is. I don't know if he can come all the way down the red pill journey or not. I'm just grateful for whatever little scrap we can get because ultimately we are the ones who are responsible for saving our race and we can make something out of this. We can make something out of Matt Walsh. We can make something out of Tucker Carlson. We can make something out of Pat Buchanan when Pat Buchanan was writing. If we can't close the deal based on the premises, the setups that these people are giving us, we're not worth our salt. So I, I'm grateful for what he's been doing. I'm, I'm glad that he's been doing it, and I hope he continues to do more. Friedrich writes in with 10 US dollars. Do you have any thoughts on Hinduism, please? Best of luck. Well, yeah, I have lots of thoughts on Hinduism, but I don't know if $10 is enough to unlock that great treasury of thoughts, to be honest. I'm just joking. It's a big story. I've done a lot of research on Hinduism because I have always been interested in comparative philosophy and mythology and so forth. It is the case that there are certain common roots of your Indi Indian languages and Indo-European languages, as we call them. There are certain common mythological themes and so forth. Those, however are mixed in with a whole bunch of stuff that's indigenous to the Indian subcontinent, like 
gods with elephant heads. That's very, very colorful and very, very alien to us. And I found it very interesting reading the Upanishads, for instance. The Vedas, not so much. The Upanishads, very interesting. There's an Indian philosophical and theological tradition that is on a very high level and is very, very powerful. Vedanta, as they call it. I've read a lot of that kind of work, Indian philosophy. I've read people like Aurobindo and Ramana Maharshi, people like that. I think they were fascinating 20th century spiritual teachers, very different in their styles. Uh, so I've learned a lot from that. I spent a month in India in, in January of 2004, and it was a memorable experience. I would like to go back maybe one more time and see certain other parts of the country that I didn't manage to see. The, the net effect, though, was it was incredibly alien. And after a while, I was just grateful <laughs> to be back in, in, a, in a modern Western society. It made me appreciate home more. I, I, was, I remember getting picked up at the San Francisco airport and going back home to Berkeley at the time, being stuck in a traffic jam in the East Bay and the freeway there. And the person who was driving was just fuming and stressed out. And I just felt so relaxed. I was so relaxed in that East Bay freeway traffic jam compared to the absolute insanity that I'd seen for a month on Indian roads, where you know there might be three lanes painted on there and there are seven lanes of traffic moving. And there's everything you can possibly imagine with wheels or hooves all in the mix. Little carts pulled by horses or donkeys, auto rickshaws, bicycles, motorcycles, cars, huge trucks, just and, and, and just a menagerie of animals. On three occasions, one in Agra and, and two in Delhi, I saw elephants on the freeway. They were in the slow lane. They, they define the slow lane. The elephants are the ones who define the slow lane, and you just have to uh, careen around them. So it's, it's quite something. There was a, a joke about an Australian man in India. He came to India, and somebody said, so do you believe in God? And he said, well, having spent a while in India, I do. And I have to say that I started feeling like there was something miraculous afoot because I actually survived Indian traffic for a month. I didn't drive. That's the number one cause of death for foreigners in India is getting behind the wheel of a car. I only saw one accident and it wasn't a collision. And so I started thinking, you know, maybe there is something magical here. But the Hindu religion, it doesn't have any, it's, it's absolutely heterogeneous, an amazing mixture of different religions or different cults. It's very much like the paganism of the ancient West. Although, of course, the myths are, a lot of the myths are very different. When I was in South India, I visited Tiruvannamalai, which is in the part of India that was never conquered by Muslims. It's in Tamil Nadu. And there you have temples on an absolutely awe-inspiring scale because in the rest of India, all the temples were destroyed by Muslims. 
but in southern India, you have temples that are not on the exact same style as like Karnak or ancient Egyptian temples, but they certainly give you the feel of it. You feel like you've stepped back into time. It's an uncanny experience to visit these temple complexes, which are like small cities. And I didn't even visit the biggest one in Tamil Nadu. So I had very good experiences in India. I kind of get why some Westerners like Savitri Devi and like Rene Ganon thought that they could recapture elements of the broken pagan traditions of the West by going to India where there's an unbroken paganism. But so much of those original elements that were shared with the West have been submerged for thousands of years and, and, uh, blended with things that are quite exotic and different, that it's kind of a maddening quest. It's a kind of maddening idea. But you do get the feel of a pagan polytheistic society. You definitely get that. Now, Savitri Devi wrote about that in a, in a book in French called The Lotus Pond. And uh, eventually, probably within a couple of years, we'll bring that out in translation. I've got a translation I've been sitting on for a couple of years, and I'm just waiting to find the time to get that out. So anyway, those are my thoughts, Friedrich, on Hinduism. So thank you very much. Let's see if there's some more questions here. So Chuck writes in, Greg, what states have you visited that you enjoyed the most? I would have to say that California is my favorite state, and it's very sad that it's been so befouled and basically lost to our race. In terms of scenery and, and beauty, I also love Montana and Wyoming a great deal. Those are two of my favorite places that I've been. I like Washington State, like the coast of, of Washington State, the Olympic Peninsula a lot. I like the Columbia River Gorge. I do like parts of Oregon, but really it's California and Wyoming and Montana that are the most beautiful. I also very much like uh, New Mexico, but specifically northern New Mexico, Santa Fe, Taos, the high, colorful desert. It's astonishingly beautiful. And I'd actually consider living in northern New Mexico. Uh, I, I really like the feel of that, that area, especially around Santa Fe. So thank you. That's a really good question. So let's see if there are... Archie writes, Matt Walsh criticized Israel and Zionism and the disproportionate control they have over U.S. politics. That was 10 years ago. And he's now silent. Well, that's too bad, but he has been talking about other things that are dear to our hearts. So I still think that's important. Archie writes, I just want the war to end. I am Ukrainian. Yeah, I'd like the war to end as quickly as possible. How about we just have a settlement and wait for Putin to die? And then, and then have a real settlement, just a temporary ceasefire, and then wait for Putin to die. When Putin dies, Russia is going to be completely in chaos in all likelihood. And things can be settled then, perhaps, and not necessarily with, uh, with bloodshed. Yeah. So anyway... Um, Archie says, my gut tells me that Trump's heart is more in ending the war than in DeSantis. Yeah, I, I think so. But a lot of people on the right are just 
you know, being dumb contrarians. And so they decide that because libtards uh, support Ukraine, that they support Putin. And Putin has really good memes. In fact, that's the best thing he's been able to produce during his rule are memes for semi-retarded kids on the right, basically, who just lap this stuff up. And if he had not started this war and proved that he was a paper tiger, he would still enjoy this false uh, high reputation as, as a really tough uh, guy. Unfortunately, that's been, been tarnished a lot. I, I want to be perfectly honest. The fact that Trump might stop supporting Ukraine actually makes me like him less. Be perfectly honest. I, I can think of a lot worse uses of, of U.S. tax dollars than helping a white country that's being invaded by an anti-white, antifa, uh, multiracial empire. That's usually what America does, right? <laughs> so it's very ironic that America is trying to uh, beat back an, a rival power of the same essential nature, and white people are benefiting from it in in Ukraine, and uh, I, I'm, I'm happy about that. Okay, let's see here. I have another question from... Oh, before we go into that, I'm just going to throw something out. In, in, in our secret chat group on Telegram, somebody was talking about the, uh, this, this, when I hear the word culture, I reach for my pistol line that's been variously attributed to Hitler and Goebbels and Goering. And uh, I just thought I would toss this out to all of you in the audience. What word do you hear that makes you want to reach for your pistol? For me, it's geopolitics. When I hear the word geopolitics, I know that I'm about to be sold something blatantly immoral, and therefore I reach for my pistol. So folks out there, chime in in the, in the chats. What, is, what word leads you to want to reach for a pistol? So that's a good one. Sutton has asked me to share my thoughts on Substack. Well, here are my thoughts. I read a lot of things on Substack. I read a lot of things on Substack that I wish I could have published at CounterCurrents. And I don't know what people are getting per article at Substack, but sometimes I think I could, I probably could beat them. And I just wish more really good things were being published here rather than on Substack. But I understand the motives for Substack. I know that if you get popular on Substack, you can, you can get a few patrons and a lot of people ch chipping in nickels and dimes. It's sort of like Patreon or Subscribestar, things like that. It can really help somebody make it as an author. And so it's an extremely valuable platform. They seem to be fairly free speech oriented as well. Correct me if I'm ignorant, but I don't know of people who have been deplatformed from Substack. I would have a Substack myself if I thought I could use either PayPal or Stripe, which I can't, in order to get the payments. It would be great if there was some way that I could use Substack, as, like I use Entropy, to allow people to send donations with credit cards to uh, support my work. So I understand 
the uh, the motive for for going to Substack. And there's a lot of really good journalism there, a lot of really good commentary. I follow stuff on Substack that's not necessarily political. They're just independent writers on music and art that I look at. I look at far more often than I look at Morgoth or or Millennial Woes to to name a couple of people that I do follow on Substack. So anyway, I I understand it. I think so far it's a free speech platform. Again, correct me if I'm wrong. Certainly freer than Twitter. It provides a way that people can monetize their work. I think that's extremely valuable. And I think that it can help change the world in in a positive way if if some of our people get on on that platform. So yeah, I'm bullish on it. But honestly, I just wish if you're writing really good articles, you'd send them to countercurrents. So, but I, again, I get why not. I don't, I don't have the budget to compete with what some people get or what some people hope they might get. And I think in a lot of cases, it's more about hope, something, you know, people hope they get from Substack. Also, let me say that I've never paid a penny to anybody on Substack. I, I'm, I'm sorry, Morgoth. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry, Woes. I haven't, I haven't chipped in for any kind of paid subscription yet. I apologize for that. Somebody did buy me a paid subscription to, to one blog on Substack. And I appreciate that. But I've never chipped in any money. And I think that Substack, for the most part, is a way that people get more free stuff off the internet. That's how I use it. And I can't imagine that I'm that unusual. So, uh, however, I do think it, people people get on there because it's a relatively free speech forum. It does allow a certain amount of monetization, although there's a huge number of free writers on there like there is everywhere else on the internet. So those are my thoughts on Substack. Okay. Okay. Eugene says, technocrat makes him reach for his pistol. Archie says, egregious or scale. Um Let's see if there are any answers to the, what do I reach for my, ah, Thomas Steuben writes in our democracy. Yes, that's a, that's a popular one, actually. Thomas also writes in the more weapons to Ukraine means less arms in the Fed's hands to massacre Americans like at Waco. This is true. Also, I'm a bit of an accelerationist. And on this, I, I kind of think that Anything that bankrupts the United States will end the current regime. And I'd rather they bankrupt themselves helping out a white nation rather than, say, doubling down on drag performances in Ecuador. Just to pull a random thought out. Okay, so let's see if there are more questions here, folks. There is a question that Thomas asked me. Earlier, I published an article at Countercurrents uh, basically criticizing the boycotting idea, you know, boycotting people who support the Great Replacement and stuff like that for the simple reason that practically every business (laughs) does it in one way or another. However, the Miller Lite boycott is an example now of a really powerful backlash boycott 
that has, has really made a major corporation tremble. Heads have rolled. Stock is in the toilet. Target has been backing off on certain stuff recently in fear of the same kind of boycott. I wish that we could summon up, we could conjure up the boycott energies that are being expended on stuff having to do with transsexuals to um, deal with people who support the great replacement. Maybe it can be done. I will say that I was skeptical about this in the past, but yes, these boycotts have had teeth and it would be interesting to see if some of our people could find a way of turning a boycott against the replacists, against the great replacement, against anti-white businesses. That I think would be extremely valuable. So it's, it's worth a try. It's worth considering. Eric has written in, Greg, do you think the white race will survive into the next century? Yes. I think the white race will survive into the next century. If we do nothing, it probably won't survive the century after that, though. And therefore, we have to do something. I believe, ultimately, that white nationalism in one form or another is going to win. The only question is how and when. Will people finally wake up and listen to us once we've lost almost everything? Or, or will, it, will people wake up soon enough that many, many white homelands can preserve themselves? That's the only question in my mind. Eventually, something like white nationalism is going to win out. It's just a question of when and how much can we save. Eric also asks, what personality traits will you not tolerate in other people, people you will not associate with? Okay, that's a, that's a good question. My basic view is the people I don't like and won't tolerate, don't want to be around. Well, first of all, just very broadly speaking, just highly neurotic people are hard to be around. Highly neurotic people experience a lot of negative emotions and it's tiresome to be around highly neurotic people. You know, they're worried about this. They misunderstand that. The transaction costs of dealing with neurotic people are extremely high. There's just a lot of wear and tear. Uh, it's a grind to deal with people. So any, any form of neuroticism is wearisome to me. Uh, but the worst personality traits are basically dishonesty. And I, and I won't say dishonesty in the little white lie sense. Everybody tells little white lies to save face. You know, it's, it's, just, it's just the truth. You forgot to send something and said, oh, I put it in the mail yesterday. And then you're going to rush down to the post office and get it in the mail today. So, you know, that, that kind of shit. That happens all the time. You just have to be tolerant of that. But the forms of dishonesty that I absolutely cannot abide are usually connected, not just with minor face-saving things, but with broader things connected with vanity. There are people who are pathologically narcissistic. They live in the opinions of others and they spend their time manipulating other people's opinions in order to feel good about themselves. People like that are 
dishonest and manipulative, usually for the basest and most petty of reasons. And uh, they, they can be terribly destructive. If you combine this narcissism and manipulativeness with a great deal of charisma, these people can be absolutely devastating. And, and we, need to, we need to watch out for people like that. One of the things that our movement fails at over and over again is elevating narcissistic sociopaths with personality, you know, with charisma, serious personality disorders, but charisma into positions where they then make a mess of things. That's happened over and over again. It's part of the mentality that's looking for a Fuhrer, a man on a white horse, a dictator, the one guy who can set things right. If we didn't have that mentality, if we were more skeptical of that mentality, there would be less likelihood of people like that rising into positions of a prominence in which they can then mess things up. So that's one reason why I think we should try and get over the cult of the man on the white horse, of, of the dictator. Wouldn't it be better, instead of having being saved by a single guy, uh, a guy on a white horse, wouldn't it be better if there were so many people in our society who were serious, enlightened, and had leadership potential, that the idea of one guy standing, you know, ruling over all the others would be rebuffed as, as, as simply a, uh, an insult. Wouldn't it be nice to have such a robust aristocracy, in other words, that the dictator would not dare try it for fear of being brought down like this, this Roman, right? This rich Roman who was just trying to help people during a famine and they ordered him killed. I would rather live in a society like that than a society where you have a lot of passive people who are conspicuously poorly developed in, in terms of their virtues and their knowledge, lolling around, wasting time, wishing for one guy in a white horse to save them. You know, I would rather, I would rather have a robust aristocracy than a bunch of mediocrities and layabouts wishing for a savior figure. And we should, we should aim at building a movement that's like a robust aristocracy. That's what we should aim for. And what would that, that would do is it would require people to be more serious instead of just consuming content, right? They would uh, try and develop themselves in terms of their knowledge, in terms of their skills, in terms of their virtues. We talk about self-improvement. It's a great idea. If you want a movement that mobilizes people to self-improvement, have a movement that mobilizes people to think of themselves as an aristocracy in waiting. Rather than, again, people who are looking for a podcaster or some other figure who will save them, some guy who will make it all right. Because if you're looking for that guy, you're not developing yourself and you're handing the ball to clowns and narcissists and sociopaths who screw things up. We just can't afford that. It's, there's, we have 
too few resources, too few enlightened people, and too big an, an enemy to go up against to keep making the same dumb mistakes over and over again. So there's some real pathologies in the movement that are centered around the cult of that one guy. And uh, the sooner we get over the cult of the one guy, the sooner we all start becoming better people. And wouldn't you rather have a movement of a lot of really accomplished people than the current state that we're in? Okay, so I have basically run out of time. I'm going to give a quick look, ref hit refresh over at Entropy. Okay, I'm going to take a look at DLive. Billy Free Texas donated one ice cream. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. And over at Odyssey, let's see if there's some recent comments here. Okay. Well, folks, I want to thank you very much for, for joining in. Next week, I will be back. I am not sure who my guest will be, but we're going to be talking about something big and serious and related to this topic having to do with statism and dictatorship and aristocracy, the classical Republican model versus what we've got today, the, I don't know, the bored teenage podcast fan model. <laughs> I think this is going to be very, very important. Two weeks from today, at a slightly different time, I'm going to be live streaming a debate between me and Gregory Hood on the topic of empire versus ethno-nationalism. So that I think will be extremely entertaining. We will be taking super chats and we will be answering questions. So that will be two weeks from today. So next week, something about this debate that I think Martinez and uh, Tom Steuben have opened up. And then two weeks from today, an actual debate between me and Greg Hood on imperialism versus ethno-nationalism. So thank you very much. And we will be back next week with another episode of Counterpoints Radio. 